I hope that um, time of practice was beneficial. Sometimes the mind grows quiet very easily. Uh, and sometimes it seems that uh, no matter what we do, uh, it just spins and spins and spins through its usual, usual loops. I think one of the reasons to practice frequently um, is because even though we're developing skills as meditators, we have, to some degree, we have limited control uh, with regard to what we experience when we sit down to practice. So by practicing more, we increase the frequency with which we have the opportunity to uh, experience our mind as being more calm. I also hope that, um, specifically, I hope you're doing okay tonight given the turmoil, uncertainty, uh, though, though that's been partially resolved, uh, and also violence that we have witnessed in our country recently um, in between our country's leadership. I find it a very scary thing when um, people in charge truly don't know what they're doing or are um, more obtusely without wisdom or kindness. I find this to be deeply unsettling and I think that um, many of this are kind of enduring that, that, that kind of unsettledness in our, deep in our psyche. Uh, we have seen um, in these sometimes obscene acts that we see on TV, hear about in the news, read about in the papers, the power of views, how when we stick too tightly to them, to our views, they can disconnect us from our own potential for decency and goodwill. They can disconnect us from each other and thus can be an underlying source of fear and immense suffering. Lately, it seems evident that it doesn't really matter what side of a real or imaginary political line one is on. Everyone feels that there is something to lose. And so everyone has something to fear. Real or imagined, there is something to be taken away from us. A right, a sense of safety, a way of life, a protective law or policy, a certain level of freedom. Of course, yesterday for many of us was a better day. I tend to um, hold closely to my suspicions until I see real progress. Um, but for many of us, it was a better day, even if on a small scale. We saw a young woman given voice to 
uh, create and uh, read their poetry. I saw an image in the uh, paper, uh, um, a, um, a photograph of uh, President Obama and uh, Kamala Harris fist pumping and reminded that we had a, a black president and we have a black vice president. In paying attention to uh, the new administration and to the cabinet assignments, seeing a core leadership team that will uh, give voice to, to many women who will make important decisions on behalf of all of us. So some views uh, seem to move in the direction of um, friendliness, goodwill, maybe even reconciliation, a basic care and consideration that might move in the direction of greater equity. So some views we, um, we get behind, uh, we, we might even fight for them. As some of you know, I often uh, have attempted to overlap Uh, Buddhist teachings with current events. I see this as a kind of vocational responsibility to some to some degree. And also something that is necessary for me to feel a semblance of constructive engagement with the challenges of the world that I live in. It is also how I try to personally make sense of the world and how I try to continue to understand the function of the Dharma in the world as well as within my own life. I believe this kind of self-reflection is something that I will need to do throughout my life. I, I think the answer to such questions are fluid and evolving. I think these and other related questions are the kinds of questions the kinds of reflections that can guide us all into a deeper and perhaps also a more coherent understanding of what the Dharma is and how it functions in our own lives and in our society. For all of us, um, once our views become solid, fixed, resolute, we can't any longer learn um, we, we have closed ourselves off in a, in, in a certain way. And we miss out on so much of the potential of a human life. All and any of the potentials that come from learning more or understanding more clearly something. If we think we understand the Dharma, we have stopped learning. Even if we feel free, soon enough our rigid thinking will plunge us back into samsara, 
and dukkha will return. The Dharma is everywhere, yet it is not this thing or that thing or that other thing over there. It is always arising and it needs to be granted its fluidity if we want to be fluent in its translation and transmission. Three things in particular remain clear to me after many, many years of reflecting on the Dharma and also many years talking with other practitioners of meditation, students, friends, colleagues of mine. The first of these three things is that the Dharma truly does go against the stream. It challenges conventional and normative behavior. It prioritizes values that are not always giving given presence and are preference. It prioritizes values that are not always given preference in our culture. Excuse me. In a sense, while the Dharma is not competitive, by its nature it competes with many of the prevailing views, norms, and behaviors that we observe daily in the world. Personally, I have always seen studying and practicing the Dharma as a radical act. Nothing less than a bold confrontation against values and ways of being that I never agreed with and which I cannot quite accept. In that sense, I don't think I study the Dharma always or practice even to be a good person. I mean, I do on some level, but I think I also do it um, simply because I have to. So just as the Dharma... um, confronts the world that we live in. At the same time, that confrontation, um, at least for me, was and is, and mostly, if not all the time, non-aggressive. It doesn't feed hatred and violence, but directly opposes them. This, I think, is the brilliance of the Dharma. It is radical and confrontational while being elegant and really subtle. It is straightforward and kindly. It is without cowardice, yet absent arrogance. The second thing I have come to see clearly over and over again is that the Dharma takes practice. Without practice, we too easily succumb to the invisible pressures of societies more passive ideals. We accept what appears before us because we are overwhelmed by challenging anything that has the inertia of history. This is not different, of course, than how we also accept our own actions 
in body, speech, and mind. Going so far sometimes as to defend ourselves privately and relationally, even though we know our own approach to life is often, even if not always, suggests a lot of room for greater well-being. And the third in this list of three things that I continue to become more and more clear about is that it can be hard to practice. So the Dharma requires practice and it can be hard to practice. Number three, it can be hard to make the time. It can be hard to put forth the effort. It can be hard to continue the effort once we have gotten the ball rolling. Sometimes we show up finally to meditate and we fall asleep. Something or many things seem to be working against the meditator's effort to finally and fully go against the stream. It seems for many, though not for all, that part of our conditioning is content and settling for things even while another part of us wants something else. I imagine if we each spent a little bit of time thinking about that statement, looking at our own life and habits and being honest about ourselves, we would probably all agree. If we were open to a sufficient level of honesty and transparency and vulnerability. There is some part of us that is content and settling for things, even while another part of us wants something else. That's so interesting, isn't it? This is a tragedy sometimes. It can be a particular kind of tragedy that some people will suffer from at the end of their lives. It's probably one of my greatest fears. Most likely, the mind state of doubt contributes to this, a sometimes gross and other times subtle force inside us that questions whether the time and effort it takes to meditate is really worth it. There is really only one way to get beyond the hindrance of doubt, and that is to practice enough that the benefits become clear. Often what we want is for the doubt to go away so that we can then justify meditating enough to experience its benefits. And that doesn't typically work. We need to meditate enough to understand the benefits of meditation for the doubt to go away. (laughs) I recently completed teaching a three-month program, which um, some people in this uh, group tonight uh, participated in. And despite, uh, and this is, so this, is, this is going back to probably the summer, last summer, despite <clears throat> wondering if this program would appeal to people because of its length, and, you know, people are sometimes tired and don't, you know, from being on the computer or being home, they don't want to be on Zoom anymore. I was wondering if this program would appeal to people. And despite that, 
uh, entrance to the program required taking some time to fill out an application, uh, almost 45 people applied to the program. Of 26 who were accepted, 25 people completed the program with near perfect attendance. And everyone, as far as I can tell from personal conversation, group conversation, and written feedback, it seems everyone benefited in some significant way. Though exactly how each person benefited uh, varied quite, quite considerably. On top of this, in, a, in, in our program survey at the end, 100% of the people said that they would consider taking the program again. By the way, this program will be offered again next winter. <laughs> what, what this indicates to me is that the fruits of meditation and the broader aspirations of the Dharma, which emphasize wisdom and kindness, are truly important to people. And with the right support and the right structure, people are eager to see what this tradition of practice can offer them. For me, this was um, heartwarming. Uh, it was encouraging to me simply because it showed how, when given the chance, many people want to give the Dharma its chance to offer us some real change in our own lives. And that having been said, one of the things that the three-month program clarified was that sustaining a practice takes real effort and that there are many things in our life competing for time and attention. Everyone in this group tonight knows that. Furthermore, our own conditioning makes up all sorts of mental obstacles that work against us. While some people in the program meditated every day for three months, many people observed, most people observed, an ebb and flow of effort, an ebb and flow of motivation, um, an, uh, um, sometimes having an ability to make the time required, uh, sometimes not having the ability or the perceived ability. Though even those people who are navigating an ebb and flow of energy, attention, ability, caught glimpses of their own habits, were able to observe more clearly how flimsy some of the obstacles to practice really are. They're just not as real as we think they are. I want to talk now about why we meditate. I guess in a sense I've already been talking about that. Um, so maybe this is to try to do it a little bit more explicitly. And of course we each, uh, if we accepted the reflection at the beginning of the meditation period, uh, we've already been sitting with this question more personally. And in a sense, the remainder of the talk is the result of my own reflection and response to the same question that I asked you earlier. As we did tonight, I think we should review this question often. Um, with some regularity in our own life, not just here 
not just when we have a teacher prompting us. I don't think we should assume that this answer will always be clear. And I don't think we should assume that the answer will always be what it was the last time we did this reflection. I think we should sit down occasionally by ourselves, um, with Dharma friends, uh, Kalyanamita in the Pali, spiritual friends, Kalyanamita. Such a beautiful language, huh? Kalyanamita, spiritual friend. Um, we should sit down sometimes and just ask this question, why, why do I meditate? Why, why am I going to meditate tonight before bed? Why am I going to sign up for this program at the meditation center on Saturday? Without an answer to this question, as I mentioned earlier, doubt can very easily sneak into our mind and is like an occupying force. It, it takes over and it functions um, to complicate our efforts. It can diminish or even eradicate our confidence. Living in a world that has so many distractions, so many things begging for our attention, and with the pervasive illusion that happiness is found in external things, status, power, we have to stop these forces by sitting down and reflecting on what we really want from our own life. In order that we have enough clarity to justify our meditation practice, justify coming to class each Thursday night, registering for retreats, studying with friends, Dharma teachers, etc. So there's a standard, or we might say traditional answer to this question, which uh, would not be revolutionary to some of you, to many of you. Uh, we meditate to develop insight, a kind of knowing that leads to skillful actions. This insight is said to lead to the alleviation of dukkha. So we meditate to alleviate dukkha, to reduce suffering in our life. This is, of course, the ability to avoid the learned habits and aspects of our conditioning that, um, that dysregulate our own mind. We meditate to nurture heart qualities such as kindness and compassion. And we could also say that we meditate to transform greed, hatred, and delusion into their opposites, generosity, kindness, and wisdom. I only want to mention those as a traditional framework, a way of answering the question and focus the rest of our time on some different ways of thinking about different ways of thinking about answers to the question, why do I meditate, which what I'm sitting with right now is that this is very much coming uh, more from my personal reflection, not necessarily from the suttas. And so I, I, I want to say that. I think it's important to, uh, to put that out there. Um, and also hope that uh, doing so nonetheless offers some um, insight into your own, uh, into your own process, into, into things that are important to you. The Buddha had a way of teaching that was extremely universal. Um, and sometimes we have an ability to do that and sometimes we, we stay too close to the personal.
sometimes when people ask me why I meditate, and I'm often hoping that people won't ask me that, <laughs> but, but sometimes when, when people ask me uh, why I meditate, the most honest answer is, I just want to be present today. In fact, I have a lot of answers to the question, but I find that they're often very intellectual. And it's easy for me to draw upon a whole uh, repository of answers. But if I'm honest, if I'm uh, just a little bit more connected and not uh, relying so much on my, um, my understanding of the, of the teachings, the, the suttas, and connected to what I really want and how I'm translating uh, the Dharma and uh, justifying all the hours and years I spent practicing. Um, I just want to be present today. I want, um, I want to experience this day in a way uh, that I don't feel harried. Um, I, want to, I want to feel my own body. I want to recognize my own thoughts for what they are fleeting, insignificant moments of mental energy. I don't want to be seduced or distracted by any outside source or person. Sometimes I consider what it would be like if I died before going to bed at the end of the day. When I reflect on this, I don't want or need to accomplish anything big. I just want to feel, um, it's, it's almost like I just, to give one example, it's like I just want to be able to feel the, the metal of the spoon on my hand when I lift a, a, a spoonful of soup to my mouth. Twenty-five years of meditating and I'm still trying to feel the metal of the spoon on my hand, right? Because life... Um, persuades me to move um, fast, right? I want to know what the soup actually tastes like. Um, when I answer this way, I'm not thinking that far ahead. Uh, and goals uh, don't seem very lofty, but rather they are um, they're earthly, they're, they're grounded and practical, yet I don't think any less idealistic, any less worthy. This reasoning is based on wanting to go through the day actually aware of its texture and nuance, um, enjoying it in such a way that the rich that that richness equates to fullness, leaving me uh, nourished rather than empty at the day's end. Rather than getting it done, checking off the boxes being able to say, I did all the things. To me, doing all the things, whatever those things are, uh, really isn't that important. It's not why I get up in the morning. This, this is a matter of measuring life by standards of quality rather than quantity. It's one that emphasizes experience over accumulation.
Another reason that we might meditate um, is simply because change and growth take effort. Another reason why we might meditate is to increase our capacity for change, learning, and growth overall. Because meditation takes effort. And because life takes effort, meditation is a preparation for everything else. In life, we come across difficulties that require discernment and problem solving. And through meditation, we become more adept at those two skills, discernment and problem solving. Usually getting better at something includes some type of uh, trial and error. Um, meditation is like this. Uh, and I think often no, we don't know that or we forget that. And that's why we get discouraged when it's not going the way we want. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to teach a three-month program. So that people could keep stumbling and keep having the experience of it not going well. But then keep, but, but then keep finding out that actually they're learning a lot. And, it, and that that's just a natural cycle. Right. So meditation is like this. We develop skillful means, skillful means, which refers to the mind's uh, increased ability to do things well. Take something uh, really mundane, like running, for example, and I don't think it matter. I hope it doesn't matter whether you run or not, and I don't think it does. Last week, I went for a run in the woods on a on a loop trail across the street from my house. And at the end of the loop, my chest hurt from my lungs uh, pressing into my chest, trying to get more air due to the simple fact that I'm, I'm not conditioned as a runner. Um, my mind interpreted this as well as an overall, a, a significant overall discomfort as an indicator that I needed to stop. So at the end of the loop, I got back in my car and drove home. Um, seemed reasonable. Yesterday, so that was last week, yesterday I went back to run the same loop. And even though I was just as uncomfortable as the week before, um, nothing. You know, the body doesn't change that fast, of course, nor had I run in between. Um, even though I was just as comfortable, uncomfortable as the week before, as I neared the end of the loop, I told myself that those same sensations didn't necessarily mean that I needed to stop. So it was kind of an experiment. I told myself that those sensations were merely um, unpleasant sensations. They're just like there was, they didn't indicate a problem beyond their unpleasantness. I continued running, and partway through the second time around the loop, a lot of the discomfort went away. And for a little while, there was this time, a pretty short period of time, but there was this short period of time where I felt like I might be able to run forever. And some of you have probably experienced this in, in various kinds of activities. Though, of course, this was not true, of course. Uh, in the end, I realized that when I ran the loop the first time, I hadn't even warmed up or acclimated to moving my body in the way that running requires. 
right? So in hindsight, when there was some unpleasant sensation, I wasn't done. Rather, I hadn't quite even started, really. I hadn't even warmed up, literally. Right? Our life can um, be like this sometimes. We stop before we have even warmed up. Uh, we go back to our car too early. Uh, sometimes we never get out of the car in the first place because we are afraid. I hate running. Um, we want to remain comfortable, but at what loss? I actually run because I hate it, because it's uncomfortable, because it's painful. At what loss? At one point during the second loop, my body had warmed up enough that I was no longer cold. My legs felt strong. My mind was really calm. And coming around one particular corner, as the sun was setting, everything became orange. I ran through a, 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 a literally a, a radiant orange pitch pine tunnel. All the trees grew up and over, and there was, there was like a passageway. Um, far away from the difficulties and stresses of life, and also somehow more attuned to that life than I was just moments before. Another reason we might consider meditating is to reconcile our many human contradictions. Through the development of self-awareness, we make peace with or learn to hold different parts of ourselves. We can put to rest any battle between these parts of ourselves, learn to see them as a whole that is not broken, but rather diversified. We stop trying to be something or someone we think we need to be, stop uh, presenting ourselves to the world in a way that we think we need to in order to comfort our sense of self or to be liked. We become free of artifice and relish the freedom of authenticity. We learn that being a Dharma person isn't what we thought. The Dharma doesn't confine us in any way. Dharma has so many expressions. It's just rather that at their best, those different manifestations include some level of wisdom and kindness. Outside of those virtuous ideals, however, um, we're free to live in a way that's open to our own interpretation. We can carve out a Dharma path that is our own with agency and authenticity fully intact. One of the students in the three-month program um, explained after uh, many, many weeks of uh, considerable aspiration and passion and energy for practice that they were conflicted because they wanted to give a lot of time to their practice and they wanted to also give a lot of time to painting, to their art. This made me think of sitting in a small group of people in a classroom in Boulder, Colorado, um, probably 20 years ago, in a group interview for graduate 
school for a Master of Divinity degree. And I forget what question I was asked, but I rem remember, uh, oh, it had something to do with um, courses of study. And I remember explaining that I was a little uncertain because I was interested in all the religious classes as part of the divinity program, that, but that I had been writing a lot and had been tempted by a Master of Fine Arts and uh, the school had both programs. And so I was, I was stuck between studying spirituality and writing. And the teacher just looked at me confused and said, why don't you just do both? Like, right? So our, our mind makes up these artificial divisions and they become our reality. Uh, but they're created, they're made up. Um, they, don't, they don't match reality. Um, and if we live by them, they limit us. Another reason we might practice is to find refuge from the speed, pace, and priorities of the modern world. We meditate, at least I meditate, to escape the influence of cultural conditioning and the invisible forces that influence how I view things and how my thoughts become my habits and behaviors. I don't think we are wired neurologically to be plugged in the way we are. I think we have gotten too far from nature and in turn from a natural pace and um, a sustainable way of being in the world. Some of us are young enough to know this and if we don't put forth healthy and sustainable examples of living the generation right behind us will never question or doubt living in an entirely mechanized world. People have already stopped going to nature for insight and well-being, and in many instances the value of nature as an ally has already been overshadowed by other things. There could be a time when people don't perceive themselves to have the time or perceive, have time for meditation or, or to perceive that there's any value in something like this. How much time will it take for us to be completely unable to justify slowing down? Slowing down is not a high value in our culture. Faster, quicker, more. Faster, quicker, more. And all the answers, by the way, if you don't already know this, are on your device. Most of them are in Google. That's where the answers are. How will the next generation know how to problem solve in another way? There's a there's a term that came from the, uh, the field of eco-psychology. Uh, I forget the term. It translates as double forget, uh, culturally amnesia, a, a kind of double forgetting. Um, and and it, that term referring to a time in our history, a time in our evolution as a species when we forgot ways of knowing, like spiritual practices, uh, ways of knowing that our ancestors once knew and drew upon. That was the first forgetting. 
But then later, and to some extent we've already gone beyond this, there was a time of forgetting that we forgot ways of knowing that our ancestors knew. Some of you have heard me talking about the preservation of the Dharma. We preserve the Dharma by practicing the Dharma, by practicing the true Dharma that the Buddha taught. We also practice to be less afraid. We practice to get close enough to the notion and realization of anatta, not self, that we can take risks. When we are less identified with being someone or something, when our sense of self is more permeable, we are, less, we are also less guarded, less protective. There's no one or thing to protect. The world is less hostile and we have less to gain or lose. The world is less hostile because we have less to gain or lose. We don't have to jockey for position. We can be who we are. We can be who we are becoming. Failure and success fall away and we're better able to take risks. Uh, Better able to aim ourselves towards opportunities and goals that were previously intimidating. Particularly the ones we want to aim ourselves toward but don't because we could fail. This is my last, this is my last one. We can meditate to gain control, if not temporarily, of a world out of control. When we practice meditation with continuity, we increase the chance of experiencing a mind that is clear, stable, calm, and equanimous. Our own mind becomes a refuge from the anxiety and stress of modern life. When we practice, we can enjoy being outside the flurry of causes and conditions that perpetuate our emotional dysregulation. In a sense, I think we take control of our mind. Uh, This is different than controlling our mind. And when we take control of our mind, the world around us, its events, its injustices, its unresolved problems are temporarily not a problem. Because the world inside ourselves is okay, maybe even at peace. We are free from worry and fear. This is not, it should be said, only for our own good. Because the mind in this state can see clearly from this place, our mind can see clearly from this place our mind is more apt to see clearly how best to approach those very same challenges we needed to get some distance from. Instead of wavering and being indecisive and paralyzed sometimes, we free the mind up to cut through its own delusion and see directly, clearly, and often very simply, what can be done. Peace is not a cushy place we hide out in while avoiding the world. It is a place we rest in while we receive insight into how to show up in our troubled world. In closing, 
I don't know about you, but I meditate so the world I live in has a chance to be psychologically and morally more sustainable, more suitable to sustaining life than it currently is. And so that generations after us stand a chance of choosing a life that is passionate and well-intentioned so that we provide an example to others, and particularly young people, that to some extent, despite certain limitations that will always be present, we can choose a life rather than having a life chosen for us. In the Sutta Nipata of the Pali Canon, it is written, rouse yourself with an exclamation point. Sit up with an exclamation point. Resolutely train yourself to attain peace. Do not let the king of death, seeing you as careless, lead you astray and dominate you. During his uh, bid for president, while campaigning against John McCain, and really throughout his early career, President Obama worked really, really hard, I think, I believe, uh, to stay true to a set of principles and values. Unlike many, perhaps most politicians, he used his intuition, his gut, um, uh, and a set of virtues as a guide to prioritize uh, what he thought was right for the sake of it being right, noble, equitable. He was willing to lose, as far as I understand, in order to uphold a vision that might have cost him winning the election. He was not willing to be seduced by politics and political precedent, posturing and bending the truth about how he felt and about what he wanted, what he believed in. He was a president who literally sat in the back seat of his bulletproof limousine, listening to Jay-Z and Eminem as he, as he was driven to these large international events where he would give speeches that the whole world would hear. His campaign and his approach to life and work went completely against the stream. His was a values-based challenge to convention. Barack Obama wrote in his recently published biography, the best we can do is to try and align ourselves with what we feel is right and construct some meaning out of our confusion and with grace and nerve play at each moment the hand we are dealt. We'll just sit together for a moment. 